At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. I'm sure you know that culture can often make you uncomfortable. It's something that makes all of us, in one way or another, uncomfortable at many times. And it's particularly when we find ourselves in a culture that is foreign or different or strange or even evil that we really, really feel that that tension. We really feel the uncomfortable nature of being in a hostile or foreign culture. I remember one of the first times that I visited my mom and dad when they were living in Quito, Ecuador, where they were serving as missionaries. I was a young college student. It was Christmas break, and I went down to visit them and uh, to be a part of uh, just their new life in in Ecuador. And the traditions around the holidays uh, in Quito, Ecuador, of celebrating Christmas, and particularly New Year's is the one I'm thinking of, are a lot different than our traditions here in the United States. Uh, for us on, in the United States on New Year's, we may get together with some friends or some family. We're going to have a, a bit of a, a party, food, maybe some games, and then we're going to watch the ball drop in New York City and all celebrate and say Happy New Year, kiss each other, and then go to bed. In, in Quito, Ecuador, that is not the way it rolls. Their parties start a whole lot earlier in the day. Actually, they start earlier in the week. And what they will do there is that they will purchase a a straw mannequin, a you know, big straw bundle that looks like a person. And they will also buy a, a mask to go on that mannequin. Those masks are usually somebody driven, uh, derived from pop culture. Uh, they're the face of somebody from pop culture uh, in the year past. And so they'll take that mask and they'll put it on that mannequin and they'll have a party. Now at these parties, these parties flow over into the streets. They're not just uh, contained to their homes or to their apartments or whatever. The parties will flow over into the streets. And so if you're driving along a street in uh, Quito, Ecuador on New Year's Eve, you will be stopped all, all the time. And you will be stopped by these partygoers that will hold a rope out in front of you. And they'll, they'll be men who are dressed as women. They're dressed as the widow of the mannequin. That's the point of this all. And they'll be asking for change because they're going to be poor and without a, uh, without a husband to care for them. And so they're looking for change uh, to, to help them really fund their party and to celebrate the New Year. And then at midnight, they... They light up that mannequin and see that puppy burn just right there in front of you, roast it in effigy, and that's, that's how they do their celebrations. Now, for me, being an American and experiencing that for the first time, I was really, really, really uncomfortable. We're, we're driving through, and I'm seeing these guys, like, with ropes stop our cars, and I'm like, that's... That's a bad thing. Like, we're going to get shot or something like that. It's terrible. And then they're asking for money. And I'm like, what if you give them money? And in my 
my naive, self-righteous head, I'm like, Dad, you can't give them money because you're funding their alcoholism, and that's, that's not right or good anyway. And Dad would reach out and drop a few coins in. And then furthermore, you've got guys dressed in drag that are there trying to take money from you. And it was just a whole world of uncomfortable to me. I freaked out the first time it happened. I absolutely yelled. I was like, if I had been driving that car, I'd have just hit the accelerator, and we would have probably hurt several people as we just flew through uh, town. I, I, I couldn't imagine. It's just that new, different culture was absolutely uncomfortable uh, to me. I'm sure that you've had those experiences where you live and where you experience the culture, maybe even the culture around us, as something that makes you uncomfortable. And we have to ask the question, what do we do when we live in a culture, when the culture around us makes us uncomfortable? It presents itself as hostile to our way of life and to our faith. How do we, this is the question we want to ask in this series, how do we navigate clashing cultures? As we start 2024, I want us to think about how we're called to live as followers of Jesus Christ in a culture that can make us uncomfortable and even clash against us as Christians. The first six chapters of this book in the Old Testament, this book of Daniel, is going to be our focal point and our guide for us over the next six weeks. And if I could just give you an overview summary of the book of Daniel, it would be this. God is sovereign over our cultural circumstances. The book of Daniel presents to us a God who is not distant or aloof or doesn't have his hands on the wheel. The book of Daniel shows us a God who is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over all the nations, and he is for his people, and he will bring about his victory. This book shows us God is sovereign over our cultural circumstances. He rules and reigns over all things, even the times and the cultures and the places that we live in. And so because Daniel is built on that reality, it helps us, this book helps us navigate the experience of life when culture, even our own secular secular culture of today, clashes with Christ and his kingdom. And Daniel 1, chapter 1, sets the stage for us to think about how we can remain loyal to God even when cultures clash. When we find the culture that we live in, this this secular, post-Christian, post-modern culture that we're living in today, when we find it hostile to the ways of Christ and to who God is, we need to have a path for us forward. We need to think about how to live. And Daniel 1 helps set the pace for us in this. This initial story demonstrates three ways that we can remain loyal to God when cultures clash. And so I want to navigate us through this this story and through this passage as we think about how we live today when culture rages against us. How do we live as faithful Christians in this hostile culture, this uncomfortable culture of, of 2024? Well, the first way that we see in this story that we were called to live and to understand is that we need to recognize the cultural influences. We need to understand the cultural influences of our day and our time. I don't think it's a stretch to say that we are influenced by our culture. As much as you want to say or think that you can transcend or rise above culture, the reality is every one of us is deeply formed and shaped by our culture, even without us knowing it or thinking about it. All of us have been affected by our culture. Culture is part of even the language that we speak. So if we're going to be loyal to Christ, if we're going to be faithful to God and his kingdom, we have to be discerning. We have to be aware of what the influences that our culture brings to us that are forming us and shaping us. Before we get into the story of Daniel and his buddies here, we've got to, and and try and understand what's going on with them, we have to understand what is happening to them. 
because there are some, some historical events that are going on in their life that, that position them in a place of cultural hostility. Verses 1 through 7 of, of chapter 1 really set the stage for the whole book of Daniel. It puts us in the context of what is happening in their lives and, and in this particular drama and court narrative. Here's how the drama unfolds. I'll attempt to retell this a little bit. The, this, the timing is late in the kingdom of Judah's existence. We read in verse 1 that it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Jehoiakim was not a faithful man to God. He was actually a puppet uh, of the uh, Egyptian empire there in Judah. And uh, he had really no power at all. But there he is in, uh, reigning in the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. And we read that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian king, the Babylonian empire from the far east of, of Israel, and he has brought his forces to Jerusalem to conquer the city. It's not a good situation. And yet we read in verse 2, and we find the theological perspective that ultimately God is sovereign. It says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now notice this, the defeat of Judah and Jehoiakim was God's doing because of their sin and rebellion against him. Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city, he took the objects that were used for worship in the temple, he took them back to the city of Babylon, back and put them in his uh, temples, the, the temples of his gods and the houses of his gods, and this was a way of showing superiority. Nebuchadnezzar was communicating to the people of Judah, I own you. You have been dominated now. You have been completely conquered. Your God, who you say protects you and cares for you and even loves you, guess what? In my eyes, he's nothing. And you know why he's nothing? Because I won, and the objects of worship that you had in your temple, they're now in my God's temples. And they're there, they're there showing deference to my God. Your God is not as strong or capable as our God. Otherwise, you would have won this. But more than just dominating them religiously, Nebuchadnezzar is out to dominate them culturally. He, he wants to see them eradicated, overcome completely. So what does he do? He commands one of his chief officials, this is verse 3, uh, a man named Ashpenaz. He commands this chief official, this chief eunuch, to bring back to Babylon some of the people of Israel. And he says there's both of the royal family and of the nobility. So these are the upper class people. And they're, they're not just the people, but verse 4 says they're youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's after some of these young teenage boys that, that are strong, they're, they're good looking, they're capable, they're competent. He wants them, not for Judah's sake, but for his own sake. And so he tells his chief official, hey, go get some of these guys. Bring them into exile. Bring them to Babylon. We're going we're gonna to re-educate them. We're going to train them completely different. So the chief official went and found the cream of the crop of Judah's young men. Imagine this. These are, these are young boys, 10, 11, 12, maybe 13 years of age, that are being taken as exiles as slaves even, into the kingdom of Babylon. The purpose for bringing these young men in was, at the end of verse 4 it says, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. 
Now, that doesn't sound necessarily too bad to our ears. These, these guys, Daniel and his friends, they're going to get an education. They're going to be enrolled in Babylon University even. Except being enrolled in Babylon University isn't a great thing. The literature and language department, right, that's what they're being trained in. The literature and language department of Babylon University was to indoctrinate these young men so that they would serve as, king, as wise men in the court of the king. Now, this, this idea of being a wise man in the court of the king was an official status and it was a, an official vocation. Uh, they were servants of the king. And they had a particular thing that they were about. Let me give you a little snippet of it from some scholars. Babylonian wise men were the guardians of the sacred traditional lore developed and preserved in Mesopotamia over centuries. It covered natural history, astronomy, mathematics, medicine, myth, and chronicle. Much of their learning had a practical purpose, though, being designed to be applied to life by the means of astrology and by the study of the internal organs of animals and the practice of rites of purification, sacrifice, incantation, exorcism, and other forms of divination and magic. Babylon University sounds a little bit more like Hogwarts and Harry Potter and all of that. This is what these guys are being trained to do, to tell the future through magic, to use the occult for exorcism, to, to divine what is happening in their world. So, so think about this. These young Jewish men, instead of being scribes in Jerusalem, handling the word of God, following God from his, his word, they had been removed and taken away to Babylon and were being trained to be magicians who would know how to follow the signs and portents of the Babylonian empire. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to completely eradicate Jewish life and culture and assimilate the best and brightest of the Jewish people into Babylonian life and culture. He wanted them not to be Jewish, but Babylonian. That's a pretty significant change and a pretty significant conflict for sure in their culture, but it also came along with some benefits. For those of you who have gone to college, do you remember the meal plan that your college offered you for your, uh, for your education? Do you remember how horrible that was? Okay, these guys didn't have it that way. They were offered uh, the very, verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that he ate and of the wine he drank. Their meal plan at Babylon University was the best steaks, the best food, the richest wine. Anything that came that was served to the king it was also coming to them. And you would know the king had the chef's table going on. So these young men, these students of Babylon University, they got it as well. And this was to be their course of life for three years. Three years they were to be trained this way, educated this way. And then at the end of those three years, they were to stand before the king. Final exam. And the king would examine them. And the ones that were the top of the class, they would be promoted into being a court wise man for the king. Now think about this. Three years ago, or three years go on, they're tested, they've got a new culture, a new education, a new language, a new diet. Everything about this system was to take away their identity, to retrain them, to re-educate them, even the changing of their names. I mean, Babylon goes in for a complete takeover here. The chief official renames them all in verse 7. Daniel, he called Belshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, why does he rename them? 
Well, again, he's giving Babylonian names. Each of their Jewish names reference something about who God is or what God does. So Daniel's name means God judges. Or Mishael's name means what is like what God is, with the expected answer of no, nothing, nobody. Azariah means Yahweh helps. Their new Babylonian names, though, referred to Babylonian gods, and it even shamed the person named. One of their names, I think it was Mishael, his name uh, now is Meshach means you're nobody. That's how he was called. This is a complete overhaul of life. They have a new society, a new education, a new diet, new names. This is all a means of Babylon saying to them, we now own you. You're nothing but Babylonian to us. And this is the point I want to make here. This re-education and assimilation effort by the Babylonian Empire was to exert cultural influence on these Jewish youngsters to erase their identity as covenant people of God, for them to forget who God is and what he has done for them. Not Jewish, but Babylonian. Now, here's the warning for us today. There are powers today that are working to exert cultural influence on us as Christians in order to erase our identity as covenant people of God. The powers that are at work are seeking to eradicate from us the reminders and their knowledge that we, if we trust Christ, belong to Him. These cultural influences seek to do three things. This is how you can tell what these cultural influences are doing. If you see you're being influenced to, first of all, divert your loyalty from Christ to a preferred God or a preferred person, that's a cultural influence that's against Christ. This is happening all over our world today where false messiahs, people are claiming and saying, I'm it, I'm enough, I'll make things great again, are the ones who are diverting our devotion from Christ to themselves. Another, another way we see this cultural influences working today are they're seeking to alter our purpose from serving Christ to selling lies. We are educated on the literature and languages of this world in order to sell the lies of this world. The more that you take in the stories of this world and you affirm them and believe them and speak the languages of this world, and I'm not speaking about human languages, but I'm speaking about the, the cultural values and the cultural beliefs of this world, you're seeking to be a salesman of lies to this world. I think it's worth asking, what literature and language do you spend more time with? Are you immersed in and fluent in the biblical story? Do you know who your God is? Do you know what he has done for you? Do you know his great power and grace and mercy because you've studied it and know it from his word? Or are you more familiar with the cultural stories of our day that tell us that status and wealth, political power are what make you right? Cultural influences seek to alter our purpose from serving Christ to selling lies. And thirdly, the cultural influences today seek to replace our God-given identities with cultural identities. Instead of us seeing ourselves because God has declared this over us if we're in Christ, as justified or declared righteous, adopted in Christ, set apart and holy to God himself, we are told today to take up a cultural identity of whatever we desire and whatever we feel like we want. Rampant self-expressionism is the term of the day. You be whatever you want to be, however you want to be it, in whatever way you want to identify it, that is yours to choose. You're self-determining your life. So do away with the God-given identity that he's given you, and you be you. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Now, I could say a whole lot more on this, but if we're going to be loyal to God, if we're going to trust him, we have to know the powers and dominions of our day are leveraging cultural influence to steal us away from Christ. 
Friends, are you aware of these influences? Are you discerning of them? Can you practice biblical discernment when you watch the news, when you binge Netflix, when you get on social media? Are you practicing biblical discernment, biblical wisdom, even biblical self-control and discipline in your life? Or are you just kind of like wide open mouth, like just whatever cultures feed me, I'm taking in. I'm just receiving it, moving along with the current and the tides, wherever the powers of this world want to take you. I'll tell you, you won't be loyal to God if you are entranced with this world's culture, with its politics, with its power, with its wealth, with its luxury, and its status. You will not be able to be loyal to God if you give your heart to this world and its culture. So to remain loyal to God in a hostile culture, in even a confusing culture, is to recognize these cultural influences. We must have discernment. But the second way that we can remain loyal to God in a hostile culture is to remain dependent upon God. This is where we need to exercise faith. Now, in verse 8, the story shifts from what is happening to Daniel and his friends by Nebuchadnezzar to what Daniel and his friends are going to do in that cultural climate. How are they going to respond? How are they going to live? you got to remember here, okay, they are not there of their own voluntary will. When we read this story, we shouldn't think like they can do whatever they want. They have like carte blanche to just be what they want to be. These guys are exiles. They're in captivity. And there's not a lot of room for them to say no to a lot of things, lest they lose their heads, right? But that doesn't mean that they can't thrive in that environment. Notice what happens in verse 8. Daniel resolved. I just love that. You may want to underline that phrase. I did. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, think about this. Of all the things that Daniel could have said no to, he chose what might be, in our minds, the least likely of issues to choose. Let me, let me role play it for you here a little bit. Somebody comes up to Daniel and says, hey, Daniel, you're going to learn to tell the future by reading the entrails of a goat. For a Jewish young man, let's be like, no, I don't do that. You didn't say no to that. Or somebody comes along and says, you're going to learn sorcery and divination so you can mess with the occult and interpret dreams. And you go, Why did, Daniel didn't say no to that. Somebody comes along and says, yo, we're going to call you by the name of our pagan god now so you can forget who you really are. Daniel's like, no, 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 my name is Daniel. You call me that. No. Instead of resisting all, all those things, what does he choose? He chooses to resist the menu. Listen, somebody comes along and says, hey, listen, you're going to get a hearty, fresh meal every day, steak, potatoes, and the best wine from the king's table every day. And Daniel's like, nope, not. I mean, of all the things, I'm going to choose at least the one that gives me a little luxury, a little comfort in a hostile climate, but he doesn't. Now, why is that the case? Some biblical scholars think that Daniel rejects this because he is holding up the dietary laws of the Jews, which you can find in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. They, they think this is, these meals are not kosher, they're not right with according to the law of God, and so Daniel is saying, no, I am, I'm going to keep the law of God in that case. Others say, well, perhaps it's the fact that, that these foods from the king's table were offered to the Babylonian gods in sacrifice. I, maybe, that could be it. But the problem for me in that interpretation is that later in the book of Daniel, Daniel is eating the king's meat and the king's wine, drinking the king's wine. He's at the king's table. Furthermore, any food in Babylon 
All the food in Babylon was, was at one point or another offered to the gods and sacrifice. You could not have any meal at all unless it was offered to the gods of Babylon. So why does Daniel make a big deal of his diet here? I think the answer is found in verse 10. The chief of the eunuchs comes to Daniel and says, Daniel makes this request. He says, I don't want to eat this food. And the, king, the chief of the eunuchs comes to him and says, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were worse in condition than the youths who are of your age? You would endanger my head with the king. The chief eunuch, he's, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want you to look more weak, more skinny, more malnourished than the other guys. If, if I would do this, that's not going to be good for you. And it probably means the king is going to have my head because he's going to look at me and say, what, were, were you not taking care of these kids? I'll lose my head if these guys don't look right. The issue here is all about appearance. So think with me about this. How do you get young, exiled, captives, foreign, foreign teenage boys to look healthy and wise and attractive and capable to serve the king? How do you do that? You feed them. You feed them good food. One of the expectations for the Babylonians is that whoever served in the king's court looked good. But their definition of looking good is a little bit different than ours. In our day, you know, and certainly with the Babylonians, they expected their kings and warriors to be fit, athletic, muscular specimens of a man. But the wise men, they expected to look a little dip, differently. Uh, Daniel had a different appearance expectation on him. When you, when you look at the research of the archaeologists and the, the paintings and the reliefs that they've looked at from that time period in Babylonian culture, what we see is that Babylonian wise men were, first of all, bald, Secondly, big-eyed, which was a symbol of wisdom and intelligence in these reliefs and paintings. And they were a little bit chubby. Frankly, they had a dad bod, uh, okay? And I figured, you know, like, I could be doing pretty good in that situation there, you know? Like, hey, that works. This is the kind of body that Nebuchadnezzar is after. He wants these young men to be a little, a little fat, looking smart, being ready as wise men to serve in his court, so you don't get skinny, malnourished, exiled teenage boys to be bald and chubby by not eating well or by eating just vegetables. And that's Daniel's position here. The king wants him to be fat and wealthy and wise. Daniel says, hey, I'm not going to get there your way. He, he chooses another path. This is an issue of dependence. In this hostile culture, Daniel says, for God to make me successful, I have to trust him, not eating what's on the king's table. If I eat what's on the king's table, then the king will get all the credit for me being that appearance and that successful. But if I trust God, if I take a different route and depend on God, then I'll be able to display that it's God who makes me successful. God is the one who gives me what I need to be wealthy and wise and healthy in this way. That's the way he showed dependence was through the altered diet. So the chief eunuch doesn't say yes, but he doesn't say no either. So, so Daniel goes to the, the steward the one who brings the meals. And he says, hey, listen, let's do this. Ten days, why don't you just bring me veggies? Just bring us vegetables and water. The word vegetables there is literally grains. So it's a contrast here. Instead of eating the king's rich, fatty meals and wine, Daniel's asking for simple fare, like, like seed vegetables, bread, just simple bread and water. And he's saying, let's do this for ten days. Ten days you test me and see if my... You know, if we look any good, again, it's about appearance here. 
If we look good and we look better, this is verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. If we look great, good. If we don't, after 10 days, we'll, go, we'll do whatever you say. We'll eat whatever you tell us to. So the steward agrees. 10 days, this test trial goes on. And at the end of it, Daniel and his friends were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. This deal worked out nice for the steward, too. He got the meat and the wine from there on out. Here it is. Daniel was not compromised in his dependence on the Lord. And I think Daniel's resolve is important here. He draws a line in the sand and says, there's practices in this hostile culture that promise me that I will survive and flourish if I go along with it, but I won't be reliant on the things of this world for my ultimate well-being. Friends, do we have similar resolve? Do we believe that if we go along with the cultural tides, we will find our well-being and our flourishing and our success in this world? Or are we dependent on God? Even if it might not go well for us. I don't know about you, I think it took some courage for Daniel to say only vegetables and water for three years. That kind of diet isn't going to plump anybody up, I don't think. But Daniel's depending on the Lord. He's trusting him. He's resolving. Do you have the same resolve in this hostile culture to trust and depend on the Lord no matter what, even if it goes against the tides of success in this world? That's what we're called to do. First, we must recognize the culture's influence, where that comes from. Secondly, we must remain dependent on God, trusting God and his ways, not our own, not the ways the culture says to live it out and to to go. But we must remain dependent on the Lord and his ways for us. But then there's a third step for us. And that third step is to receive his divine favor. Receive God's divine favor for us. I don't know if you catch caught this when I was reading the text here, but there's a repeated phrase used in this chapter three times. It reflects the sovereignty and authority of God over all things. It reflects his power. It's it's there in verse two where God gave, that's the phrase, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. God placed Daniel and his friends, he placed the captives of Judah in that situation. He was sovereign in it. But the second place that it happens is in verse 9. There, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God bestowed his grace, his, his favor, his compassion on Daniel through this court official. God was showing his kindness to Daniel and his friends. And it's there again in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now get this, Daniel had resolved not to pursue success by means of the cultural norms, but by depending on God, and God supplied that success. His divine favor was on Daniel and his friends. He, he poured out his grace upon them. Everything that Daniel and his three friends needed to succeed in a hostile culture was given to them by God. I mean, think about this. For three years, God was the one who's attributed with giving them learning and skill. They're learning a foreign way. They're learning a foreign religion even. They're learning foreign practices. And God is the one who is making them excel beyond all their classmates in everything. God is even the one who gifts Daniel this this supernatural ability to understand visions and dreams. 
God is just pouring out his grace and his mercy upon these men as they trusted and depended on him because of who he is, God's graciousness to them. God gave Daniel that grace. The end of the scene here tells us something really crazy about these guys. Three years goes by, they get this re-education, they're there, and now it's time for the examination. The finals come. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Nobody was found to have as much success, much understanding, much learning and wisdom as those four young men. Therefore, they got the job. They stood before the king. They became Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. Furthermore, it says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. God gives abundant grace. He supplies the very thing that they need. And that's the the point for us. If we're going to be dependent on God in this hostile culture, he is pouring out his grace and mercy for us. He is the one who gives the ability to succeed and to flourish in this life. He is the one who supplies to us what we need to be able to navigate the difficult issues of our culture. We have been given grace in every way, most of all, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Reflect on this with me again. We deserve judgment and wrath, and yet God gives us grace in sending His Son on our behalf. Jesus Christ, who is the true wise man, came on our behalf and stood in our place for our sins. Furthermore, God has poured out his grace to give us everything we need for life and godliness. Peter says this in in 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's divine power, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's the one who's just pouring out his grace and mercy and compassion and love for us so that we would flourish in the times and seasons and places that he has placed us in. Friends, if you have Christ, if you've trusted Christ by faith, then you stand in his grace and you have absolutely everything you need from him, in him, for life and for godliness, even in a hostile culture. You can be a man or a woman of God in a hostile culture because he, in Christ, has given you everything you need. Young people here this morning, those of you who are in middle school and high school, think about this. Daniel and his friends were young people as well. Very early, maybe early middle schoolers, and they had everything they needed from God to thrive as godly young men and women in their society. Of Babylon. You too have the same in Christ Jesus, especially in the hostile culture of today. Well, let me wrap it up this way. We have for way too long been told that we need to do one of three things with regard to culture. We've been told that we need to fight the culture, so let's take up arms, let's get our pitchforks and our torches out and go fight culture. Or we've been told we need to flee the culture, let's all start in our own little fortress and commune and like run away from culture. Or we've been told we need to follow the culture. Let's just, we're in the stream, let's just go down with it, you know, let's follow along. And yet we're told somehow in one of those ways we'll, we'll make it all better, we'll fix it all, and everything will be great again. The problem is that's not the biblical answer for how we are to live in a hostile culture. In a hostile culture, the answer is to live faithfully 
under God's grace. It's to know that those cultural influences are there, to be discerning, to depend on Him, to live by faith in His ways and who He is, and to receive, to stand in His grace, to rest on Him and trust Him. It's to commit ourselves in dependence on God and to resolve to trust Him and honor Him no matter what. He is the one who will care for us and sustain us and provide for us and lead us. He is the one who will see to our well-being and our flourishing. The question is, when the cultures clash, will we trust the Lord? Or will we take up our own way? Will we seek to be what the culture says, independent, self-reliant, our own agents? Or will we be people of God, trusting and depending on Him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have given to us all that we need for life and godliness, even life and godliness in a hostile culture and in a turbulent world. So I pray this morning, Father, that you would, that you would help us, that you would shape our hearts and our minds that you would renew our hearts and minds so that we might focus our eyes on you, that we might, as Daniel did, be resolved, resolved in our faith in you, resolved in standing in your grace, resolved in living in a manner that is holy and pleasing to you in all things. Would you sustain us in this? Would you give us grace? Would we know your blessing on us, Lord? Would you help us to grow? We thank you for your word, and we pray this In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.